Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, it's so good to see you. So good to be with you. Uh, if you're brand new, uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at Spark. We're so glad you're here. We hope that you feel blessed and most of all, welcome to our community as best as we can do uh, through this format. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to connect with you and answer any questions and get to know you a little bit better. Before I jump into the message today, I wanted to spend a brief moment in just some lament. Um, whatever this new normal is, we are certainly uh, not in whatever normal is. It's not normal. And our hearts are still very much aching. Our souls are still very much yearning to be together. Uh, Spark Leadership doesn't see any way forward currently for gathering in a space. Um, we are still prioritizing safety and security and the very best understanding that we have of the disease and uh, how it spreads and all that stuff and to make sure that we are taking care of our community um, in that particular way. And so we're going to be in this for quite some time. And uh, gosh, it's just been a long time and uh, it's going to continue to be a long time. And as I was reflecting on that and just feeling, um, feeling and knowing that we are all going through various ebbs and flows, good days, bad days, good weeks, bad weeks, some moments where we're just thrilled that we have some alone time, maybe for all of us introverts, and other weeks where other moments where we're just, we really miss each other. And we really need to be able to hug one another, to sing together, to converse together, to share a meal together, all of that stuff. As I was reflecting upon this, the uh, biblical term that came to mind is the word exile. The word exile is a word uh, that describes when the Israelites were taken out of their land, out of the promised land, out of Israel, taken to a foreign land, whether that be Assyria or Babylon. And exile is the term that is used to describe not only just the physical reality of being in a foreign land, but the emotional and spiritual reality of not being in a normal place, not being in a, in a place that you can call home. And so we are, in many ways, metaphorically, uh, living in a foreign land. This is new territory for all of us. And we know that there's a lot of suffering and hurt um, in addition to the tragic deaths from the disease. Uh, we are suffering mentally and spiritually. Our children are not able to have the developmental experience that they need to have. Um, our work is suffering and our relationships are suffering. And so... Um, I was reflecting on all that and asking the question, so why are we still doing this? Why are we still online? And uh, I just wanted to share with you that this is some of my personal reflections that, you know, when you read our tradition and our story, these ancestors of ours still continued to teach their children, still continued to read their sacred texts, still continued to have children, raise families, uh, promote the covenant that God made with them even in a foreign land. They had to rethink it. They had to redo it. They had to uh, recontextualize it. Um, there were new ideas meshed in with the old, um, but they still believed that their faith was ultimately life-giving. And so in this time of exile, I would like to extend to you that same suggestion that the reason why we're doing this is that all, everything that we do is um, our, our hope and our prayer is that it is life-giving for all of us, wherever we might happen to be. So that's where we're still going to sing our songs um, and stand up and run around the house and do the motions together. That's why we're still going to recite our prayers and our blessings um, and the number one commandment. It's because we believe that all of this is very much life giving and it sustains us in and through times of exile. 
So I just wanted to share that with you at the top because, you know, every now and then we just need to stop for a moment and put a pin in just recognize our reality. And I hope that is encouraging or inspiring or gives you a little bit of a sense of hope or a little bit of sense of grounding or at the very least reduces some anxiety for your heart and for your soul. As Sarah Grace mentioned, if you have any questions or want to reach out, we are doing our best to try to stay connected through this time. So we are still taking online appointments and coffees and social distancing gatherings and all that kind of stuff. And we would love to make sure that we're still reaching out and ministering to you. Now, it is on that note of continuing to dig into our tradition that I'm going to share with you uh, the next installment of our Gospel According to Luke series um, in a message I'm entitling, How to Recite the Bible. How to Recite the Bible. Now, I'll give you just a very brief background. We've been in chapter one. We're still in chapter one. This later part of chapter one of Luke has several events. Um, Elizabeth has given birth to a son out of God's mercy. Um, That child is going to be circumcised on the eighth day, which is, by the way, the very earliest attestation that we have of circumcision for the Jewish tradition. Uh, Rabbi Moshe Silverschein, um, at the very beginning, back in 2012, shared with us that he has a tradition of circumcision in the Jewish faith, and the very first attestation of that is actually in the Gospel of Luke in this particular passage. Um, the people there are going to gather and they want to name him Zechariah according to the tradition uh, because John is going to fall into the priestly line of his father, Zechariah. But Elizabeth says, no, his name is going to be John. Zechariah is going to write on a wax tablet. His name is John. A wax tablet is something that looks very much like this. It was what we might consider a book-ish kind of thing, but it had wax in the middle, and you would write uh, on that. And that was very common for uh, school children in that particular day. It comes from the Greek Hellenistic uh, schooling system. Everyone is amazed. Then Zechariah opens his mouth and begins praising God, and everyone is afraid. Those are the events that are going to lead us up to this next section that I'd like to focus on, which is Zechariah's Benedictus, which is a Latin word for meaning blessed be. A couple of weeks ago, I shared with you that the movement that we see in this uh, Luke passage and in the movement of Jesus is bringing together the full-orbed sphere of our experience. So religion and politics is going to be addressed Uh, and, and is going to be redeemed through the movement of Jesus and John. I also shared with you that this is personal and societal, um, and there's some transformations that are happening through this movement. So John is going to become a prophet, even though Zechariah is a priest, and Jesus is going to become a king, even though Mary is just a peasant girl. There's two, well, there's several more movements that I'd like to share with you. So two of them really quickly patriarchal and patrilineal cultural mores. And then I'd like to get to how is the Bible, how are sacred texts actually being used in this passage, and to use that as kind of the focus for our message today. First, there are some really amazing things that are happening in this story. First of all, there's a patriarchal system and culture that exists. And rather than Zechariah naming the child, it's actually Elizabeth that names the child, which begins to dismantle the patriarchal system. Second, there's a patrilineal system, cultural system, which means that if a child is born, it's very, very natural, of course, for that child to fall in line with the father's line and the father's ancestry. 
But in this particular story, the child is named John, which has no connection whatsoever to Zechariah's line. And his vocation that's going to be called out by Zechariah here to be a prophet is not in any way connected with Zechariah's profession and vocation, which is to be a priest. And so here in the beginning of the story, once again, we are seeing the upending of the cultural norms and the cultural mores, the cultural ways in which people organize themselves. So the patrilineal and the patriarchal line is being dismantled, or at least is being shown to not have the same power, to have the same authority in this particular movement. Now, it is based upon that that Zechariah, after all of those events happen, Zechariah begins to prophesy. And in this prophecy, he's going to recite the declaration about who John is, what he's going to do, and how he's preparing the way for the movement of Jesus to take off. Remember, this is an ancient biography, and we're learning more about who Jesus is through these texts. It's a fairly lengthy passage, but I think it's worth reading the entirety of the benediction that Zechariah gives here. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child... This is, of course, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. The Lord there, by the way, is now Jesus. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins, by the tender mercy of our God. The dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and then the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly to Israel. Now in this passage, there are two main categories I want you to notice, themes that we are familiar with. The first is notice the rescuing from the enemies. This is once again, falling in the same line, a political statement. This is about the body politic and about the whole system of politics that exists in the ancient world. But then there's also this turn towards holiness and righteousness, the forgiveness of sins, mercy, and righteousness right there also means the justice of God. There's light to the darkness, um, and there's a transformation um, of who we are as a people in our spiritual journeys. So once again, you have religion and politics, you have the personal and the the private, you have the individual and you have the communal as part of this movement. There's also this clue and this hint about where this is all going because two times at the end of Zechariah's prophetic benediction, he uses this phrase, hodos, which is the way. It's Greek for the way or the path. It is the same word from where we get our word odometer, 
the idea of measuring how far along a path or a journey that we've gone. This word is going to ultimately be the phrase that is used to describe the early Jesus movement. Remember, the first followers of Jesus were not called Christians. Jesus wasn't a Christian, neither were the early followers. They were members of a Jewish sect that they called the Way. Now, why is that important to state? It's because the phrase here used as the Way is like the Way of Peace, the Way of Justice, the Way of Righteousness. These early followers of Jesus were pushing forward everything that we've been talking about throughout this well, entire existence of our church, and especially in this focus on the gospel according to Luke. The idea that political and religious transformation can happen. The idea that righteousness and justice can come and redeem corruption and really bad authorities. The idea that there's personal, private, individual, and public, and corporate, and communal salvation and rescue that can happen. The idea that pushing forward this way brings life and vitality, that it rights all the wrongs, brings equity and justice. It brings all those things that Pastor Omer was talking about last week in the message regarding Mary's song, the victory over uh, evil and oppression, and the establishment of equity and justice to allow those people that have been oppressed to rise up and have equal voice and equal stature equal value and worth within the context of a community. So all of those things that we've been talking about, all of this stuff that we've been talking about is what is encapsulated in the way, which is why this is the word that is going to be used for the early Jesus movement. Now, what I'd like to do is show how that way is also true when it comes to the sacred texts of this movement. When reading over these texts, I was struck by something that commentators and others were pointing out just all over the place, that throughout Zechariah's prophetic benediction, there are multiple references to the ancient texts. Here, we're just scrolling through very briefly. I've highlighted in yellow and underlined the passages that some people believe are either direct references or allusions or thematic draws from the ancient text, from what we would call the Old Testament, what they would have called the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. And this list is just kind of incredible. Here is a short list of the passages that Zechariah may be referencing in his Benedictus from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Judges, Ruth, Psalms, First uh, and Second Samuel, Chronicles, Kings, and then, of course, the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, and Malachi. And some of those bolded there just simply means that these seem to be either direct quotations or huge themes that Zechariah is pulling from. Now, What's going on here and what seems to be um, a principle or a lesson that we can take from this? Both Mary and Zechariah seem to understand what it is to read their sacred texts in a new time and in a new moment, given the circumstances that they're facing, but also recognizing that the ancient texts that they were reading and that they've carried around, that they've held holy and beautiful and inspiring to them, are actually life-giving, society-changing, power-upending, life-transforming. 
And this is actually going to be a theme that is characterized throughout the ministry of Jesus. Throughout the rest of the gospel according to Luke, as well as other passages, you're going to see Jesus refer to Old Testament passages, what we call Old Testament, refer back to the Torah. Uh, refer back to the Pentateuch, refer back to the prophets and the Psalms, and retell them in a way that are contextualized within the person of Jesus and his life and his work and his ministry. So, what Zechariah and Mary seem to be doing, and we see this huge uh, throughout Zechariah's benediction here, is doing something very similar that is setting up for John and for Jesus. Now, to get a real contrast for this, what I'd like to do is take you to a place just southeast of Jerusalem, to a place called Qumran. Now, some of you have been there, so this will be review. Some of you have no idea what this place is. It's on the north shore of the Dead Sea in Israel, smack dab in the Middle East. It's down in the Rift Valley, which is one of the lowest places on the face of the earth. It was here that archaeologists found one of the greatest finds of the 20th century, the famous Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, there's huge study to be had here, but for now, I just simply want to point out that they had the biblical text, but they also had additional texts. Over 800 manuscripts were found in these caves. Some of them were guidelines for how to interpret the Old Testament passages for this new community, for how they were to live and how they were to behave. It resulted in the Essene community, this the group of people that inhabited this location, leaving Jerusalem, setting up their own community out in the middle of the desert, having very strict rules and guidelines for behavior, for when you're supposed to get up, when you're supposed to get, go to bed, how you're supposed to ritually behave, how you're supposed to morally and ethically and sexually behave, how you're supposed to eat, how you're supposed to pray, all of this stuff. And it was all centered around the beauty and the sacredness of these texts. Here's one of them that you can actually see and read for free online uh, through a Dead Sea Scrolls project in partnership with Google. These um, people venerated, loved, cared for these texts, which is part of the reason why we even have the Dead Sea Scrolls today. That's how precious and valuable they, they protected them. They kept them sacred. And when it looked like they were going to be destroyed because of an invasion, this is the, our best guess, they put them in jars and hid them away in caves until 1947 when some Bedouin found them. They believed that they were relics sacred to their religious identity. But they were about ritual. They were about protecting the community. They were about ensuring that the community wasn't going to be sullied, wasn't going to be tainted, wasn't going to be compromised. Strict adherence. That's happening at the same time that the movement of Jesus moves forward. In fact, John, who is going to be called John the Baptist, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, if you do some study, if you look this up, some people are going to suggest that John is actually coming from the Essenes. He's coming from that community there. But the recitation of these texts, these ancient biblical texts by Zechariah and Mary, seem to show a little bit of a different contrast. Upon the birth of John... And the birth of Jesus and their benediction, their singing, their prophetic voice moving forward and calling out all of these texts, they are actually inaugurating a very different kind of mission into this world that we can see through John and through Jesus. 
And if I could put it in one quick summative statement, the recitation by Zechariah of these sacred texts was for liberation rather than the citation of sacred text as oppression. Let me say that again. The recitation of sacred text as liberation seems to be the agenda of Mary and Zechariah, whereas for others in a religious framework, there is a citation of sacred text as oppression. Same texts, same holy scriptures, but two completely different visions, two completely different perspectives for what those texts mean and how they are to be used. Now, this to me seems to be extremely relevant for many of us who are swimming in the American context. We all know and are have unfortunately experienced what I will call and what others have called bibliolatry, the worship of the Bible. And we're familiar with the use of the Bible as a tool for policing morality, as a gavel for declaring guilt or innocence, actually. So if somebody does something wrong, the Bible says that you're wrong and you're condemned. Or I might be doing something that I think needs to be right, but other people are saying it wrong, but I'll go to the Bible and justify my behavior if I can pull out a a text or pull out some sort of verse that seems to justify my own self-righteousness. The Bible is often used frequently, too, as a prop, perhaps as a show of religious piety or a way of just declaring authoritarianism. We are all familiar with the ways in which these texts are used, misused, and abused. But what I think I see in the Zechariah Benedictus, the declaration of freedom from enemies, light to the darkness, forgiveness of sins, the mercy of God, and the ultimate leading to the path of the shalom, the peace, the way of peace that is coming, is that these people, these early followers of Jesus, this early Jesus movement is grounded in a way of reading these texts as liberation, as social transformation, as the bringing together of the fullness of God's covenant and love and mercy and righteousness and justice to bear on this world. And we see them and this tradition pushing forward a different conception of how to use, read, understand, and live by sacred texts. There's another contrast that we have here if you do textual history. Textual historians have noted that the beginning of written texts actually came through the urbanization of civilizations. As people gathered together in much more civilized, what what you would call cities and urban centers with administrative centers and kings and powers and rulers and authorities, texts were pushed forward that would help to create control and governance over these areas. So we have a couple examples. The Code of Hammurabi is one of the very first legal and legislative codes that we have. It's written on this amazing stella, established power, authority over the people. We have the Amarna letters, which are a bunch of administrative texts that are helping to facilitate the control that Egypt has over Canaan. And then we have the Merneptah stella, which is an Egyptian text that declares victory over all of these rulers and people. It's actually one of the very first indications of the written word Israel is in this Merneptah stella. Joshua Berman writes, the display of monumental writings was a display of royal power. And so, 
writing at the very beginning of its emergence within the context of all of these empires was a means of control. It was a means of making sure that the city and the urban centers and the civilizations were dictated to exactly what the king or the emperor or whoever the ruling authority might happen to be, how they wanted the world to be. But there is a pretty significant textual history in our scriptures. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that have been written about by some of these textual historians. And what they are going to suggest is that the development of the alphabet, the change of the language, and the distribution of these texts to the people began to shift the power and authority. And rather than using written texts as oppression and control, these written texts were actually used as liberation and freedom. Why? Because rather than just the king dictating what is supposed to be, now all of us together have these texts. We all understand them. We all can keep each other accountable. accountable. Righteousness and justice has been democratized amongst the people. William Schneidwind, in his book, How the Bible Became a Book, expands on this extensively. On page 98, he writes, written text had the power to emancipate the individual from the authority of the community-held tradition. And what is so frustrating, intriguing, thought-provoking, but also frustrating, is that we understand this. Those of us who are in a American, perhaps evangelical, or post-evangelical, or ex-evangelical, wherever we might happen to be, we actually come from a tradition in which this happened to be true. Back in the 16th century, there was this movement called the Reformation. Long history there. In short, it was a change from how religious expression was to be made by saying, listen, the authority and the abuse of the universal church at that time needs to change. And they promoted different ways of conceiving and thinking about how faith should be expressed. And one of those was called Sola Scriptura, which means that people now should, as, and especially as a result of Gutenberg's press in the 15th century, people should have access to their own scriptures, to read them for themselves, to be able to see that the authority lies not with the governing authority, religious authority, but with the people. That was the early movement. But it's so intriguing and, again, frustrating that the sacred texts that were used to liberate, to bring about a social change, a radical rescue and redemption of corruption within a religious authority has once again over time devolved into that same authoritarian nature in which we use our sacred texts. Christian Smith has described this in his book, The Bible Made Impossible, by using the word biblicism. He writes this, Biblicism too often traps, domesticates, and controls the life quaking proclamation of the gospel in order to provide the Bible reader with the security, certainty, and protection that humans naturally want. My friends, I'm introducing you to the great tension of these sacred texts, and it's one that I think we will wrestle with for a long time. It is the great tension and paradox that our tradition, going all the way back to Genesis and Deuteronomy, once again relived and revived in the time of John and Jesus, stated in and through the Song of Mary and the benediction, the prophetic benediction of Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, 
that tradition is to say that these sacred texts are for liberating people from oppressive powers, to bring democratization of faith to everyone, that we can read them and read out of them justice and mercy and social change. And yet at the same time, those same texts in the hands of different religious leaders, in the hands of a different perspective, is actually used to still oppress and condemn. Here, my friends, is the lesson that I am taking away from reading Zechariah's benediction. In the declaration of the movement, in the beginning and the inauguration of the movement of Jesus, in the birth of his son, John. So many recitations of sacred text used to bring about a revolution. Here's the lesson. Those who use the Bible to oppress, those who use the Bible to keep the status quo, to promote racial hierarchies, those who use the Bible to squelch and put down the beautiful diversity of our humanity found in the various sexual, gender, ethnic, and cultural identities, those who use the Bible to self-justify your own self-righteousness at the pain and the oppression of other peoples, those who read the Bible that way are doing it wrong. The tradition that we are a part of, which we are grounded in the way of Jesus, remember. What we see in Zechariah and in John and in Jesus and in, in this movement is a constant recitation of these ancient texts. These texts are good. They're beautiful. They are inspiring. But they are inspiring in a way that brings liberation and transformation and justice and mercy to this world. That's how these texts are used. And that's how Zechariah quotes his Bible over and over and over and over again. In Mary's song and Zechariah's prophetic benediction, we see a recitation of sacred texts to liberate, to advance justice, to redeem the lost and rescue the broken, to shine light in the darkness, to promote the tender mercies of God and to love, to ultimately guide our feet into the way of peace. So my friends, how are we to recite the Bible? Just like Mary and Zechariah. That's how we do it. Because that is the way of Jesus. We do not hold the Bible up as an icon or as an idol. We do not worship it. We do not venerate it as somehow higher than Jesus. We recognize that it is a gift, an inspiration, and it was deployed into our faith tradition to bring this faith, this justice, this mercy to the entire world. Zechariah did it, Mary did it, Jesus did it, and we are commissioned and called to do the same. And I encourage us, challenge us all to consider carefully, how do we recite the Bible? We're going to move into a time of communion in which we are going to recite texts from our New Testament, pulling from our tradition. If you have some bread and some juice, I encourage you to get it now as we recite the words of institution, again, to declare Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, the full embrace and full encompassing of this Jesus movement. For even in his death, burial, and resurrection, we see the liberation of humanity from sin, from corruption, from greed, 
from pride, from all of the evil of this world. And so we recite these texts in that light and for that way once again. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. My friends, the body and the blood of Christ which is broken and shed for you, and again, for all of you, every single one of you.